CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 18th day of October, 2009. I'd like to welcome all my listeners to the Corbett Report podcast and invite them all, as always, to look into the websites, CorbettReport.com, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, and now ReportageBook.com, the website where you can find news and information about the Corbett Report's forthcoming book, Reportage, Essays on the New World Order. I'd also like to thank all of the affiliates who helped to get the Corbett Report out to the masses, including KROCKS Radio 1 at zeropointradio.com, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, Archive.org, and RadioForAll.net. Also, for those who haven't been keeping their eye on the Corbett Report homepage or on our YouTube account at youtube.com slash CorbettReport, you don't know what you're missing, because we now have not one but two weekly video series that are ongoing and feature conversations with some truly astounding individuals. Of course, one of them is Economics 101, the series which is being released on Mondays, and our most recent episode features Richard C. Cook of richardccook.com, former U.S. Treasury analyst, and someone who has spoken at great length and written at great length on the subject of monetary reform, and we discuss his Cook plan in the most recent episode. And also the new video news update series called The New World Next Week, which I'm conducting each Thursday with James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. So once again, even more reasons to visit the Corbett Report homepage on a regular basis. And of course, you can watch all of our recent videos in a very convenient form on the homepage using the new video player. Or of course, you can always watch them in full screen, full high def quality at YouTube.com slash Corbett Report. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes to us from myfoxdc.com, 13th of October, 2009. Woman disabled by flu shot reaction. Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Bolton. And I'm Sean Yancey. A few weeks ago, Desiree Jennings was training for a half marathon. Tonight, she's struggling to walk, talk, even eat, left disabled by a very rare reaction to a seasonal flu shot. Claudia Coffey has more on this serious side effect. The vast majority of doctors say flu shots are safe. In this case, the FDA says they found nothing wrong with this particular batch, but sometimes there are complications. And that's apparently what happened to Desiree Jennings. And now her life will never be the same. 
Here, 26-year-old Desiree Jennings is the picture of health. She's a Redskins cheerleader ambassador and an avid runner. Her life changed forever on August the 23rd when she says she got a seasonal flu shot at a local grocery store. I was training for a half marathon and it all went so fast. Ten days after receiving the shot, she came down with the flu. After that, her health spiraled downwards. She started passing out and had to be hospitalized twice. Yeah, we went to an urgent care facility and they wouldn't even let her get out of uh, my, my truck because she was seizing in the back, so they called an ambulance immediately. Doctors at Fairfax Inova and Johns Hopkins diagnosed her with a rare neurological disorder called dystonia. They think it was caused by a severe reaction to the flu shot. She now has difficulty speaking, walking, even eating. During our interview, she had several seizures. The effects are irreversible. Today's second real news story comes from The Telegraph at telegraph.co.uk, 15th of October, 2009. MEPs call for compulsory EU lessons in schools. Leaders of the center-right EPP grouping in the European Parliament say there should be compulsory classes for 14-year-olds in all member states. The calls are being led by Mario David, a Portuguese MEP who was chief of staff to European Commission President José Manuel Barroso when he was the country's prime minister. He claimed the controversy surrounding the Lisbon Treaty demonstrated there was widespread ignorance of the EU's work. All the debates about the Constitution and then the Lisbon Treaty showed a great deal of lying, cheating, and mistrust about the EU, he said. In Ireland, people were told there was going to be abortion across the EU, that young men would be conscripted into a European army. This was a bunch of lies. Knowing and understanding from a young age the principles, the procedures, and the successful history of the European Union, the generations of tomorrow will be immune to any distortion of the perception of the role of the EU and will much better embrace the advantages of this unique project of voluntary sharing of sovereignty. Today's third real news story comes from Steve Watson of Infowars.net, Thursday, October fifteenth, two 2009. Canadian Health Minister wants 100% of population H1N1 vaccinated. Despite national polls indicating that only one-third of Canadians intend to get the H1N1 flu vaccine, a federal health minister says it is the government's goal to vaccinate 100% of the population. My goal is to have 100% of Canadians vaccinated, Chief Public Health Officer Dr. David Butler-Jones told reporters at the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. The minister stated that the vaccine will be rolled out in the first week of November, with the goal of vaccinating everyone by the end of December. Butler-Jones scolded a portion of Canadian health workers who have also indicated that they do not intend to get vaccinated. Doctors and nurses are not immortal, as much as we might think we are, he said. And unfortunately, if we're not immunized, and if we have influenza, we'll take it into the nursing home and hospital and, potentially, we'll kill our patients. The concerns of Canadian doctors and health workers have been proven justified by a study led by Dr. Deruda Skrowski of the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control and Dr. Gaston de Serres of Laval University, Quebec. The study found that seasonal flu jabs could double the risk of developing swine flu. Today's fourth real news story comes from the register.co.uk, 
16th of October 2009, DARPA, Microsoft, Lockheed team up to reinvent TCP IP. Arms Global Corp. Lockheed Martin announced today that it had won a $31 million contract from the famous Pentagon Crazy Ideas Bureau, DARPA, to reinvent the internet and make it more suitable for military use. Microsoft will also be involved in the effort. The main thrust of the effort will be to develop a new military network protocol, which will differ from old hats such as TCP IP in that it will offer improved security, dynamic bandwidth allocation, and policy-based prioritization levels at the individual and unit level. New network threats and attacks require revolutionary protection concepts, said Lockheed Cyber Arsenal Chieftain John Mangucci. Through this project, as well as our Cyber Mission Maker initiatives, we are working to enhance cybersecurity and ensure that warfighters can fight on despite cyber attacks. Lockheed will be partnered with Anagran, Juniper Networks, LGS Innovations, Stanford University, and of course, Microsoft in developing the MNP. Today's final real news story comes from theguardian.co.uk, 13th of October 2009. Recruited by MI5, the name's Mussolini, Benito Mussolini. History remembers Benito Mussolini as a founding member of the original Axis of Evil, the Italian dictator who ruled his country with fear and forged a disastrous alliance with Nazi Germany. But a previously unknown area of Il Duce's CV has come to light, his brief career as a British agent. Archived documents have revealed that Mussolini got his start in politics in 1917 with the help of a £100 weekly wage from MI5. For the British intelligence agency, it must have seemed like a good investment. Mussolini, then a 34-year-old journalist, was not just willing to ensure Italy continued to fight alongside the Allies in the First World War by publishing propaganda in his paper. He was also willing to send in the boys to persuade peace protesters to stay at home. Mussolini's payments were authorized by Sir Samuel Hoare, an MP and MI5's man in Rome who ran a staff of 100 British intelligence officers in Italy at that time. Welcome, my friends, to episode 103 of the Corbett Report, The Smart Grid Cometh. Many people might have thought it was just a figure of speech when the illustrious Nobel laureate and oft-lauded president of the world uttered these remarks at a campaign rally in Rosenberg, Oregon in 2008. But keep in mind, you're right, we can't tell them don't grow. We can't uh, drive our SUVs and, you know, eat as much as we want and keep our homes on you know, 72 degrees at all times, and uh, whether we're living in a desert or we're living in the tundra, and, and then just expect that every other country is going to say, okay, you know, you guys go ahead and keep on using 25% of the world's energy, even though you only account for 3% of the population, and we'll, we'll be fine. Don't worry about us. That, that, that's, not, that's not leadership. Rest assured, however, that that was not merely a figure of speech or not merely something rattled off as a vague campaign promise. 
No, in fact, that is a very real reality, which in fact had become a reality even before those words were even uttered by the dear leader, Mr. Obama. In fact, even in January of 2008, we had articles like this one from UCAN.org. California Energy Commission wants to give government control over your thermostat during emergency events. Quote, California utilities would control the temperature of new homes and commercial buildings in emergencies with a radio-controlled thermostat under a proposed state update to building energy efficiency standards. Customers could not override the, th the thermostats during emergency events, according to the proposal, part of a 236-page revision to building standards. The document is scheduled to be considered by the California Energy Commission, a state agency, on January 30th. The description does not provide any exception for health or safety concerns. It also does not define what are emergency events. End quote. Now, whereas that may have seemed like Orwellian science fiction to most people in January of 2008, by now I think most people are beginning to understand that that is really only the tip of the iceberg. And in fact, under proposed new systems and new infrastructure which is being developed at the moment, the radio-controlled thermostats will not in fact even be necessary. Because in fact, all electricity and all electrical devices will one day be controllable from a central command location. Of course, one aspect of what I'm talking about is commonly referred to as the smart grid. And the term smart grid, of course, generally refers to the smart power grid or an electrical delivery supply grid, which will be able to route power throughout the energy grid to respond to supply and demand concerns and other problems faced by energy grids of the old-fashioned sort. Of course, generally when you hear about the smart grid, it will be in glowing, wonderful, receptive terms and will concentrate on the wonderful selling points of the smart grid, and it will sound something like this. Well, I think of the smart grid as a new power system that allows the customer to make smart and wise energy choices. And I divide that into five categories. The first category is simply there's a new meter on your house, so instead of having to send a person out there to read it, the meter reads itself by sending the data electronically to the grid. The second benefit is the ability to control end users that cause peaking conditions to arise, like, for example, air conditioning on a hot summer day. That's called demand response, and that's the second category of benefit. The third category of benefit is energy efficiency. And so by informing customers about how much they're using at what time of day and what their cost is going to be through like an in-home display device, we influence energy consumption. The fourth major benefit is allowing the customer to generate their own power through, for example, photovoltaics on the roof or through a battery storage system. Sometimes this is called distributed generation. And, and connecting the customer's generation with the grid in a seamless, integrated fashion, allowing smooth flow in both directions. And the last category is the ability to charge the new generation of cars that will either be hybrid electric cars, in other words, gasoline as well as electric batteries, or just pure electrics. How big will these benefits be? I think you, you've done the study kind of trying to calculate the monetary benefits of smart grids in the U.S. over the next 40 years or so. If you take all of these different benefits that I have been describing, 
and you evaluate them year by year over the next 40 years, the, the estimate that we have developed uh, for the United States uh, is some, something, let's say, over $500 billion in present value terms over the 40-year horizon. That, of course, was Ahmad Faruqi, interviewed on the Economist podcast about the smart grid. And Ahmad Faruqi is, of course, an analyst for a consulting firm and obviously someone with an agenda to sell to the listeners. So the glowing description of the wonderful benefits of the smart grid should be taken with a hefty grain of salt. After all, do we really need to be reminded what happens when we deliver the energy industry and even the way that energy is delivered into our homes in the hands of a few benevolent multinational corporations who are kept on a short leash by the ever-attentive governmental regulators? Recently, audio tapes of the Enron traders were discovered. What do you want to call this project? Uh, I have a catchy name for that. <laughs> How about, you know, something friendly like Death Star? <laughs> the tapes revealed Enron's contempt for any values except one, making money. Hey, John. It's Tim. The regulatory's all in a big concern about is we're wheeling power out of California. He just steals money from California to the tune of a million. rephrase that? Okay. He arbitrages the California market to the tune of a million bucks or two a day. <laughs> An arbitrage opportunity has been defined to me as any opportunity to make abnormal profit. So an abnormal profit would be um, returns above and beyond the norm. I was told that a good trader is a creative trader, and a creative trader is a trader that can find arbitrage opportunities. One of those opportunities was called ricochet. I'll see you guys. I'm taking mine to the desert. In the midst of the energy shortages, Enron traders started to export power out of the state. When prices soared, they brought it back in. So we fucking export like a motherfucker. Getting rich. Traders would stay after a 12-hour shift and pour over maps of the Western energy grid. What are the permutations and combinations of ways to move power around the West? And I think that that's something that Enron knew better than any other energy marketer in the country, period. We know all of the California imports. We know all of the California load. We're getting pretty spoiled on with this money. You said you were getting a little scared or making a little too much, and I, I tend to agree with you. <laughs> These are two traders, T-R-A-D-E-R-S. This is what they say. What we did was overbook the transmission line we had the rights on and said to California Utilities, if you want to use the line, pay us. By the time they agreed to meet our price, rolling blackouts had already hit California, and the price for electricity went through the roof. Did you have any knowledge that this was happening? The only, the only thing that I'm aware of, Senator, is there was, a, uh, there was a difference of opinion on the rules of the independent system operator. It was just set up. The rules okay. weren't quite, quite clear. We have traders here from Enron who were saying they did something wrong, but you don't see anything wrong. I have one last question, and then I am done. Traders soon discovered that by shutting down power plants, they could create artificial shortages that would push prices even higher. Hey, uh, this is David up at Enron. Uh-huh. 
There's not much uh, demand for power at all. And we're, if we shut it down, could you bring it back up in three or four hours? Oh, yeah. Why don't you just go ahead and shut her down then, if that's okay? I want you guys to get a little creative okay. and come up with a reason to go down. Like a forced outage type thing. Right. Those guys, at the flip of a switch, could just yank the California economy on its leash whenever they wanted to, and they did it, and they did it, and they did it, and they made so much money. There would be ample supply available at the right fucking price. Oh, sure there was. It wasn't just Enron. Every company traded according to the, to the rules that California put up there. And we're in the future of Enron. And we're fucking making half a billion dollars for Enron. Can you believe that? Yeah. We'll definitely retire by we're 30. And we're talking about a commodity that normally trades in the 35 to 45 dollar range. High prices are when it gets in the 50s or a thousand dollars. Prices aren't going to stay at a thousand bucks forever. We doubt the weak people in the market you know, get rid of them. And you know what? The people who are strong stick around. And the Enron traders never seem to step back and say, wait, is what we're doing ethical? Is it in our best long-term interests? Does it help us if we totally rape California? Does that advance our goals of nationwide deregulation? Instead, they sought out every, every loophole they could in order to profit from California's misery. No, I dare say we don't need to be reminded of what happens when big business gets in bed with big government to create big problems which benefit them in a big way at the expense of little old you and me. Because, of course, always, always, always the centralization of control in the hands of multinational corporations who are paying off the regulators who are supposedly keeping an eye on them will always inevitably and without fail end up in billions of dollars for the big boys and nothing for you and I. And this smart grid technology will be no different. But first, perhaps it's important to get a handle on the smart technologies which are coming into play and how they will affect you and me, because rest assured, the smart power grid is only one very, very small facet of a much, much wider campaign to introduce radically different technologies, which of course will all be artificially intelligent and will help us in our day-to-day tasks to create a better world. Don't take my word for it. Take IBM's. We can build a smarter planet. Smarter towns. Smarter cities. Smarter government. Smarter retail. Smarter shipping. Smarter airports. Smarter food supplies. Smarter grocery stores. Trains. Cars. Smarter streets. Smarter classrooms. We need smarter people. Really smart. Smarter hospitals. Smarter energy grid. Connect them all together. And what do you got? Happier people. That's what I'm working on. That's what I'm working on. I'm an IBMer. I'm an IBMer. I'm an IBM. Let's build. Let's build. Let's build a smarter planet. Yes, that's right. We're certainly not simply talking about smart energy grids. We're also sm- talking about smart traffic grids and smart public safety systems and smart government and smart education and smart health technologies and all sorts of other smart solutions that are being proposed by the very same IBM that as Edwin Black ably demonstrated in his seminal work, IBM and the Holocaust, pioneered the racial census that the Nazis used to catalog the Jews and other undesirables in the Holocaust, and then provided and leased and maintained the punch card systems which were used to mechanize and automate that self-same Holocaust, 
And yes, that's the same IBM that continues to win the rights to conduct the census in the U.S. and other countries. And yes, this is the same company that's partnering with National Geographic for the Genographic Project, whereby people will lovingly put the quadden swabs in their mouth and hand over their DNA as part of a scientific study to find out more about you. For wonderful, loving ends, of course, and it's something that you should line up and get on board for, right? Well, perhaps not. But as I suspect you've already gathered, what we're dealing with here is much, much, much more than just smart energy grids. We're talking about something called smart technology, which is about to take over every facet of our lives with AI technologies, which will revolutionize our world. And yes, this is coming about due to large corporations with very dark histories and ulterior motives. Let's start delving into some of the aspects and ramifications of what it is we're dealing with with these smart technologies. This week I had the chance to talk to Jordan Kaufman of CorruptionRadio.com and someone who's been researching the IBM Smarter Planet campaign and some of the smart technologies which are being introduced around us. So I would recommend listeners go to CorbettReport.com and take a listen to my recent interview with Jordan in its entirety. Or if you prefer, you can go and read the transcript of this interview in the article section of CorbettReport.com, which was provided by the InfoWars wiki, and which, again, is greatly appreciated. But right now, let's listen to a short clip from that very fascinating conversation, where we start by talking about the IBM project to develop a smart traffic grid in Stockholm, Sweden. They're lobbying uh, nations around the world to put in uh, various different systems of organization, um, like, uh, for example, I don't know which pieces you're gonna, you really want to get into or cover, but I'll just mention one of them for now is their license plate recognition software that's being, uh, that's being used in Sweden. And what's interesting about this is that they have the precision down so well, where basically the point of the system is to uh, recognize every car that comes in and out of Sweden. Uh, and uh, they do this by not enforcing people to carry a transponder, but with a set of video cameras that recognize the license plate uh, with stunning accuracy and can track out of 500,000 cars that pass the, the camera's view, they only miss about three or four uh, cars. They miss identifying them. So they identify the car, and then their car is charged based on the time of day they're traveling to avoid uh, peak traffic uh, time periods. They, there's a graduated scale for when, when, what they charge you, and at the end of the month, you get a bill. And that, that's just kind of one example. And, of course, the stated goal of it is to reduce traffic, uh, which it is effective in doing, and um, but but it, it is a little disconcerting when you when you compare it with the other aspects that are of what they're doing right now, and of course the historical context. Exactly, it's like once finding one piece of a jigsaw puzzle, and you don't quite know what that piece does until you see the other pieces. But just on that uh, Swedish uh, license plate uh, scanning system, uh, I, one of the interesting points that struck me when I was listening to your podcast was that apparently, I guess the Swedish government had hired a team of lawyers to deal with complaints about this when they were first instituting it, but they didn't quite get the uh, flood of complaints they were expecting. Right, you know, it's interesting. There was only uh, like five or six people that... Um, that objected and uh, that, that tried to appeal because those lawyers were meant for appeals. 
Um, and they, there was really no reason to hire 40 lawyers to handle five appeals. Um, and, uh, and so they, they were really taken aback by that. And not only that, IBM also hired um, part of the contract that they sold to Sweden include one of the, in other words, it's not just a lump sum contract, right? They have to itemize everything. One of the items was for a call center to deal with complaints in addition to the appeals. And uh, the calls never came. I mean, there was, you know, the, there, was, there was obviously no reason to even have such a department. Um, but they did circulate a number for people to call and complain. So it, it, it is very interesting that, um, that there's, there's, when people you know, think that this is going to be difficult to spread you know, from Sweden, I, I don't buy that. I, I think that this is going to be very easily accepted. Um, and it's, you know, of course, these, these, all their operations were easily accepted in World War II, but we have to remember that the technology was much more, much more primitive. Um, and because besides this network of video cameras, and video cameras don't sound very, very complicated, but uh, how, how do 500, out of 500,000, how do all but four or five get, uh, get recognized? Uh, there's some very powerful computing power uh, behind that, and I don't, I don't know if that's something you're going to get into. Well, it's certainly something that we, we should get into, but just on the uh, license plate scanning note, I, I fear that you're right, that people will simply accept it. Um, even just from my hometown of Calgary, Canada, I recently had a, um, a news story pop up. Uh, I was scanning the local news, and apparently they've instituted a new law for uh, people who are who are parking in the city. And instead of parking meters, they're now using a system where uh, people will actually have to plug in their license plate meter, uh, sorry, their license plate number in some way into a system, which will then be downloaded by the uh, parking authority, which will then go around with license plate scanning cameras to scan the, the uh, license plates of everyone in each parking spot to make sure that they're registered to be there. And uh, apparently since uh, Calgary is a, a jurisdiction in which people don't need a license plate on the front of their cars, there's now a new law that people have to park uh, front in so that the back end is showing so that they can read the cameras without getting out of their car. So and and the only complaint that people had was that they now have to park in a different way. It wasn't about the license plate scanning cameras itself. So again, people can be inured to this and, and inculcated in it. But as you say, this is this is just one particular aspect of a much, much larger system. So why don't we start by taking a little bit of an overview of some of the technologies that are involved, and then we can look at some of the pieces of that. Sure. Um, well, okay, so we, we discussed the, um, the, the uh, traffic grid, um, the, uh, the control grid on, uh, with regards to traffic and coming in and out of cities. There's also uh, a power grid, and, uh, and, and again, I mean, they're, they're, I, I don't want to miss the amazing technology that is out there and some of the benefits that are purported. Um, I, I just really think that it's not the full issue. For example, um, you know, a lot of these things people can find in, like, the May 4th issue of Fortune. And the reason I bring that out is just so that, you know, people know this is not, you know, it's just some, some, uh, some, some fringe idea that we're bringing up here. You know, this, this is... Um, you know, they advertise it publicly on there. If you watch their advertisements or if you include it in your podcast, I don't know. Um, but they, they're they very public about it. I mean, they want to get people to like this idea. So this is, um, you know, this is this is right out there in the open. So you have the, the power grid. One thing that the, the power grid is going to do is be able to get a better view into the individual usage of people in, with regards to their power consumption in their home. And... Um, so, in other words, and you've even seen some commercials. I believe there's a, 
uh, a GE, uh, a GE commercial, a Whirlpool commercial. Uh, and again, these companies are oftentimes interlocked. Um, and where, you know, they have a kid making a comment about how, uh, you know, that they, that now they have a smart washing machine that tells them that they should do the dishes at 11.30 p.m. when there's not, uh, when there's, when there's the, a lull in the usage of energy. And, uh, and so that, that's a little peek into kind of where they want to go in that direction. Um, and, uh, in, a, in addition to that, you have, um, medical records. Of course, medical records are going to be, uh, something that's going to want to be centralized and they're going to want a vision into. Um, and it's really, uh, you know, when you start seeing all these different areas that they, that they want, they really want to know everything about what you do. And really at the center, right, because there's various different applications, and IBM will continue to come out with new ones. Um, they all fall under what, what, of course, you're aware of. It's called the Smart Planet uh, ca campaign. And really at the center of the, technologically speaking, the center of the Smart Planet campaign are these petaflop computers. Now, just to maybe, uh, if, if your listeners can, can uh, try to visualize what, a petaflop computer is. It, it's a machine, a uh, computer, that can process 150,000 calculations every second for each person on the planet. So for all six or seven billion people, for each one of those individuals, they have a computer, a single computer, that can process 150,000 calculations about, about, about you, about me, about everybody. 150,000 calculations per second. And that's just where they're at right now, and that's just one of these supercomputers. So that's what's at the center of, uh, of all these various applications. Right, and that links into a lot of other technologies that are being worked on that, um, that will provide a, a forum for ubiquitous computing, whereby every object that we have, even our clothing, will have microchips embedded in them that will be scannable and readable and trackable, and of course will uh, be able to provide that a smart grid where, where, for example, you walk into a store and the store already knows your measurements so that they can provide you with a tailored suit or something to that effect, or that's the minority report type world that we're moving into. So there are so many different right. ways in which this will affect people's day-to-day -day life. But um, let's, let's but start... Let me just comment on that. Before we go forward, let me just comment on that for your listeners, right? Because what, what you just said to the average person on the street, if you just said what you just said, it would sound very strange, very fringe, but what you're saying is, is completely mainstream to people that are aware of the technology. Um, so I just wanted to comment about that, that there is uh, actually a clip you can find on YouTube where there's a, a clip from the Advent uh, or the Ascent or the Advent um, conference, which is Siemens Conference, which Siemens is a large company, not as large as IBM, but it's very mainstream, and they talk about how these, uh, the chips where they can identify the products are going to be sold for less than a cent per chip. So, um, in other words, if they, you know, they buy these things by the billions, and for less than a penny each. So that makes them cheap enough to put on the product because what they want to know is they want to get into the mentality of people when they pick up a product in a store, they walk around, they see a cheaper, uh, cheaper brand, and they put it back, and then they take that. They want to understand people's mentality to such a degree so that they can, you know, be manipulated further. And, um, and so this is something that they, they brag about and they, they talk about how, uh, you know, how this is ready right now. So this is not a fringe topic. I just wanted to make that clear 
uh, when you bring up things like you know microchips being in all of our products. This is 100% um, mainstream idea. Jordan Kaufman of CorruptionRadio.com. And for listeners in Las Vegas, you can catch Jordan Kaufman on, on Saturday nights on KDWN 720am from 9 to 10pm Pacific Time. Of course, Jordan is perfectly correct that there's nothing fringe about the idea that we are going to be very shortly living in a world in which everything will be electronically tagged and traced, right down to the level of even our clothing will have microchips embedded in them. And, in fact, if you want to know more about this, then you should start looking into things like ubiquitous computing, everywhere, ambient intelligence, and the Internet of Things. These are all phrases by which this Orwellian sci-fi nightmare vision of a completely tracked, traced, and controlled world are being obscured right now. And of course, this technology, like all technologies, will be sold to us as if it will be the savior of humanity, much as the IBM Smart Planet campaign tries to make us think that we are somehow going to save the world by implementing IBM's technology. Well, of course, the truth, as always, is quite otherwise. So in order to start exploring this topic and going down the rabbit hole which this topic leads to, we'll listen now to a short extract from an interview that I conducted recently with previous CorbettReport.com guest, Greg Nicoletos. Greg Nicoletos, of course, is the founder of We the People Will Not Be Chipped, which is available at WeThePeopleWillNotBeChipped.com which is the first Terran substrate neo-Ludite campaign against the transhumanist campaign to get everyone in the world basically wired into the mainframe. And of course, we are looking at implantable microchip technology. We're talking about the Internet of Things and talking about neural networking and, and many other extremely interesting, fascinating subjects. So I had a very, very interesting one-hour interview with Greg Nicoletos, which I would highly recommend people listen to. In fact, this is one of the most difficult interviews to take an extract from that I've ever conducted. So I will only attempt to take a short extract that I think is somehow able to convey what the breadth and scope of what we talked about in our discussion. But of course, this short extract does not do the entire conversation justice. So let's pick up the conversation with Greg Nicoletos of WeThePeopleWillNotBeChip.com at the point where I ask him for some real-world examples of how this smart technology is going to be implemented in our daily lives and we start discussing some of the broader ramifications of this technology. If you go onto the Apple, you know, App Store, um, a classic example is one app which is is moving towards augmented reality. What you actually need is you don't only need the 3G Apple phone; you actually need the 3GS, which actually has a compass built into it as well. And by having the compass, you can then obviously utilize the app, which um, Let's say, for example, you know you, you want to know where all the subways are in your local area. You then hold up your phone, and utilizing augmented reality technology, it basically overlays information to you on your actual mobile phone. So I can then say to you, look, the you know the um, subway is just down the road, two kilometers away. So what it does, it adds data and adds information to your current 
view of the world. Um, another example of that, which, you know, and, and obviously, you know, the yuppies, I don't know what you call them in your country, you know, the guys that see the hip and the cool aspect of it will be major adopters of this. I mean, look, I enjoy a nice glass of wine. I'm not a wine buff, but I'll give you a real-world example. Let's say you moved into a wine store who had actually implemented um, the electronic product code on the actual products. The electronic product code actually has... Um, more data on the actual wine than what you would read on the label. So, for example, you might have, you, you take your mobile phone, you hold your mobile phone up to the actual wine um, bottle, which then has the EPC code. The EPC code then gets read, and then there is actual data that is relayed back to your mobile phone to be read in real time that says, look, this bottle of wine is best served with, you know, sirloin steak, um, we recommend it with this particular cheese. It's this sort of vintage, and um, you know, it comes from this harvest. These are the awards it has. So that is the benefit approach. The problem then becomes: you then purchase this bottle of wine, which has got an RFID tag or let's say a barcode on it, and from there on, the product then leaves. You walk through the portal, and then you are actually assigned that particular product to your purchase records which then can obviously be harvested and then maintained on a database and then actually cross-correlated forming a very good picture of the sort of person you have and then we can start moving that sort of data to actually being sold to other companies, marketing companies that can say okay well Greg likes this particular bottle of wine let's start targeting these particular products to him. So unbeknownst to people, with every, it's just like anything on the internet. When you install a toolbar, the toolbar isn't there to help you. The toolbar is there basically to assess and track your movements on the internet, um, which is then fed back to a local server. And then from there on, they can basically start seeing what site you went to, what site you didn't go to, and then obviously start building plans to actually monetize your movements. So the, it, it's, the, it's the old story. There is a benefit, but with every benefit, you know, th there is someone making money on the other side. And yes, of course, this goes back to business interests, but it's something I've pointed out many times before, and I'll point it out again here, is that, of course, this is exactly, exactly what uh, Admiral Poindexter was talking about as his yes. ideal for the Information Awareness Office when that was launched back in 2002, when he was talking about building these vast relational databases using financial transaction records, which at that time were going to have to be culled from numbers of different databases and correlated with all sorts of information. But what we're talking about is basically a system where that's already electronically done simply through the system itself and through all these uh, product tags. So we're moving into a system that has been designed specifically for uh, these types of tracking purposes. And yes. that's, on the, that's on the consumer level. But of course, this, this technology is also being marketed to governments on the, on the sort of infrastructure type level. And we yep. talk about the smart power grid, for example, or we talk about smart traffic grids or even smart yes. global health implementation. Can you talk about some of those larger infrastructure type projects? Okay, um, I'll give you an example. Let, let's say if you looked at DARPA, for example, um, how DARPA is, is working with what's called the global information grid. So um, the information out there is very sketchy. So what it comes down to is when the Star Wars project was actually put into place, 
um, which was obviously, you know, the, the U.S. defending himself, themselves against the Russian um, nuclear threat and stuff. The, the Star Wars project is very much alive, but it has moved from being, let's say, whether it ever was a military defense project, you know, who's to say, you know, we're not privy to that sort of information. But the Star Wars project and the actual building of, you know, the global information grid is really, um, I, I guess, it, it's really about being, mapping the reality as we have digitally. So it, it is about taking your real world experience and move it, moving it into a binary ones and zeros sort of a solution um, with the actual technologies that is currently available. So how this will all work from you know, DARPA's perspective, it is really about just total domination over the internet. It is about total domination over the electromagnetic spectrum. It is about moving this to a censored environment where we are talking about sensors and, and for the listeners out there, they use the word sensors and actuators. All a sensor is, is a sensor is something that is capable of um, extracting information from an environment and the, the better the sensor, the more information it can actually extract relating to context. So what that means is... Um, you might have temperature sensors, you might have sensors that can um, basically determine um, speed or you can have sensors that can basically interpret height. So um, to, to bring it into perspective, going back into the real world scenario again, um, there is an actual project that's been worked on in the UK, for example, where um, depending on, let's say, the person's um, recyclables that they have, um, you can have, let's say, an RFID in a glass bottle and RFID in your normal trash. So if you throw the trash which has got the RFID and you don't put it in the right recyclable, you could be actually then issued with a fine because the one sensor would say to the actual RFID when it's been read, hang on, you've actually put a plastic bottle into the newspaper um, bin and that could then obviously generate an actual fine. So that is where, I mean, a sensor then becomes a witness to everything. So every product then becomes a witness to your environment and then the witness to your environment can actually go out and basically make you a guilty party. So th this is the sort of information that um, realistically DARPA and all the military-industrial complex is really trying to get. That, that It is really about just total containment of the information flows as they actually occur over the whole world. So w when you look at it, what they want is if Greg Nicoletis, let's say, moves from point A to point B, they want that sort of information in real time. They, they want what's called on time, in real time, all the time. A and that is an actual quote that has actually been used by the DARPA people um, and how they will move about that is goes back to sensors again. So they are currently working on um, new ways of actually, um, I guess, how do I explain this? They're, they're utilizing neural networks. So what they're currently working on with IBM, for example, is they are reverse engineering the brain at the end of the day. So just to go off track a bit, 
the the one side which they are basically proposing to us as as mankind where we the people comes in what they're saying to us is they're saying look for man to evolve as a species you will need to actually put transistors and resistors or you know not transistors um and and processors into your actual mind for you then to evolve into the next evolutionary species basically and Stephen Hawking has said that so it's not any conspiracy theory that is the marketing agenda that is actually coming out from um, from the transhumanists and from the pro-technology camps once again Greg Nicoletos of we the people will not be chip.com and once again I recommend you go to CorbettReport.com to listen to that interview in its entirety and when you do, you'll discover that, in fact, Greg Nicoletos and We the People Will Not Be Chipped have just recently released a new video called One Mainframe to Rule Them All. This is an incredibly powerful documentary, and it's a relatively short one, but it's one that's well worth seeing as it's a heavily documented documentary exposing IBM, the Verichip, and human implantable technologies and it features interviews with Edwin Black, the author of IBM and the Holocaust, and goes into great length and detail about the Verichip and the ways in which it's being implemented. As I think that extract from our conversation shows, the rabbit hole is very deep indeed. And what we're talking about on one level is not simply the ultimate technology, the technology that has been lusted after by tyrants throughout history to completely track, trace, and control and see every movement of every object in the world in real time. We're actually talking about the eventual replacement of the human species with silicon imposters. Yes, we're talking about that transhuman ideal of the people becoming the machines and the loss of humanity itself. Now, I invite my listeners to contemplate the real ramifications of that on their own time, and of course you can use that interview with Greg Nicoletos, or you can use episode 57 of this podcast, Transhumanism and You, to begin exploring some of those issues in its deeper context. But for right now, I suppose it's important to concentrate on how the smart technology grid is being slotted into place in order to implement the all-seeing eye of total information awareness, which, of course, we'll remember from last week's episode, was the ultimate ideal of DARPA and Admiral Poindexter, the convicted felon in the Iran-Contra affair, in order to collect, assemble, and parse the data transactional and otherwise of, well, every human being on the planet if they can get it. But if all the information so far presented today has not sent a chill down your spine, perhaps this will. It comes from industry.bnet.com from the 5th of October 2009, microchip implant to link your health records, credit history, social security. Quote, Novartis and Proteus Biomedical are not the only companies hoping to implant microchips into patients so that their pill-popping habits can be monitored. Verichip of Delray Beach, Florida has an even bolder idea. An implanted chip that links to an online database containing all your medical records, credit history, and your social security ID. End quote. 
Of course, the implications of all of this should be becoming quite clear to my listeners now, as should our only course of action, which is to resist this coming technological control grid here and now while there is still time. Of course, there are numerous ways to do this and numerous groups out there that are taking action and which people should be supporting in their quest to stop the technological enslavement of humanity. But the first rule, as always, is to get yourself informed and then inform others of this key issue. That's all for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for this episode of The Corbett Report and asking you to join me again next week for episode 105 of The Corbett Report, Weaponized Culture.
Spock sabotaged the system. 